Well, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this last, uh, this last couple of weeks, of course, Christmas has been on our mind. And uh, in our household, we, m- my daughter Harriet, who has very strong views on things, um, was, was having an interesting discussion with someone who's looking after, who, who's not a, not a Christian believer. And the person asked her whether she believed in Santa Claus. Harriet has a very strong view on this. I'm not going to make my view publicly known, of course. But her view is that, no, she doesn't believe in Santa Claus. Uh, To which the person said back to them, well, how can you believe in Jesus if you can't believe in Santa Claus? This is an adult. It wasn't a child. It was an adult saying this. It sounds, I guess if if you're a person who goes to church, that sounds almost ridiculous to pair the believability of those two characters on the same part, on the same level. And yet, there is a large minority of people who would believe that the existence of Jesus uh, is problematic. In fact, there was a survey done, like, 2016-2017 by uh, a group called Barna, which said 22-23% of people don't believe that Jesus historically existed. He wasn't a real person that he, he didn't, didn't actually come, as good as his teachings might be attributed to him, he didn't actually exist on this earth. Now, for some of you, that, that might be quite extraordinary to believe, but for others, perhaps you think, yeah, exactly, I don't believe that Jesus actually physically existed, but I do like the ideas that Christianity brings. That's what gets me interested every week. Although, of course, I think it's worth pushing against that slightly, because I think there's a lot of historical evidence, of course, for the existence of Jesus. The, the people who call themselves Christians through the last 2,000 years have done so on the basis, in part, of the historical reliability of those accounts of Jesus' life. Of course, there are non-Christian authors who attribute the existence of Jesus, uh, you know, Josephus and Tacitus, these are historians around his time, who specifically remark about his existence and about activities that are attributed to him at his time. Now, they don't believe, they're not Christians, they don't believe certain things about what Jesus did or didn't do, but they do believe that he existed. There are, of course, many sources within, you know, 30, 40 years of Jesus' birth. So the gospel accounts range from between about 40, 50 AD through to 90 AD. These are accounts that are collaborations of people's eyewitness experiences of Jesus, all put together and accepted by the community. People, people read stuff about Jesus as if it was history, knowing the people who'd written it and the people who'd witnessed it. So they had a very clear sense of the his, historicity, the physical existence of this person, Jesus. And, and the early church, of course, it's a testimony 
to a willingness to commit to the, the idea that Jesus is real because the Bible doesn't operate on the basis that Jesus may or may not have existed, but there's some ideas worth taking hold of. It operates on the basis that Jesus was a real person who really existed in, in, in a period in time in history. And the early church is willing to endure great levels of persecution on the basis of that fact. All of that, I think, mitigates against the idea that Jesus did or didn't exist. But what's really interesting, of course, is that anyone who's read on this will find that there are many people who are sceptical about the nature of Jesus' ministry or the purpose of Jesus' ministry, maybe sceptical about certain components of it, but they're not sceptical about the existence of Jesus. So there's a quote here. Could you put the first slide up for me, please, Graham? Thank you. There we go. I'm sorry about the font. I'm, I've been in holiday mode and I forgot to increase the font size. So the people at home will be able to read it. You at home at the building will struggle. Um, this is Dominic Cross, and he's a skeptic. I mean, he, he, but he believes, interesting, he's a skeptic about many things about Jesus, but he doesn't, he's not skeptic about the existence of Jesus. He says that Jesus was crucified as sure as anything historical can ever be. This is very important to, a historian worth their salt does not doubt the existence of Jesus. Jesus is a real person. He exists in time and place. And yet, we don't take this for granted anymore in our culture, that people just automatically believe this. So I, I guess I open this morning, if you're watching, if you're in the building, and that is news to you, to, to ask you to pause and reflect on why you assume that Jesus is not real when there is sufficient evidence to believe that he is. In fact, people who disagree with much of what Jesus would say or his claim Jesus did would not disagree with the fact that he actually existed. But, of course, there's a greater question than that. Just because someone exists doesn't mean that you know who he is. So the greater question, and it's the question, actually, we're going to spend our time over the course of the first quarter of this year, the first school term, so to speak, is who is this real Jesus? Because we're going to spend time looking at John's Gospel. We're taking a break for four weeks from next Sunday, for four weeks in January, but then we'll kick back into it in February and spend a couple of, about eight weeks in total, looking at the first half of John's Gospel, thinking about who is this real Jesus? That's, that's a very important question, actually. It's not, impo- it's not enough to just believe that he exists, but who is the person who existed? That's a very important question. And it's actually the question that John is trying to answer for the people who are reading his account of Jesus' life. If you've been with us over the last four or five weeks, we actually spent the lead-up to Christmas just reflecting on the prologue, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, preparing ourselves for the birth of Christ and for what that means for us, broadly speaking. But now as we embark into the story of John's Gospel, what's really interesting, the passage I just read, is the first time that Jesus actually gets introduced into John's account. So up until now, we've, met, we've, we've heard of him through the prologue, but we haven't met him. And we've obviously we've spent a bit of time thinking about John the Baptist, who last Sunday our student minister, Ed, uh, spoke about. But today, in verse 29, we meet Jesus. And this is what it says. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a, it's a very well-known verse. But I think what's worth just reflecting on in this verse is how does John categorize Jesus? He says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For John, his first introduction 
to Jesus for us is this. Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world. He's the great sin remover, you might say. And the thing with this is, I mean, this probably grates against us a little bit. It's not how you might introduce someone straight away. This is the person who's going to get rid of your sin. But that is exactly where John starts. And sin, dealing with sin, is the predominant discussion in the Bible, actually. It's the thing that the Bible is grappling with. How do we deal with sin? Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He's describing the state of the world, and he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their future heart, foolish hearts were darkened. Paul's actually saying, sin is this great chasm between us and God. This is the great problem, actually. The world is alienated from God. And what's more, here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 51. So it's not just a a New Testament Paul kind of idea. This is an idea that resonates through the Bible. It's found in the early parts of the Bible. Against you and you only, says King David, to the Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see what he's revealing? He's saying sin is the great problem. Sin is between him and God, and sin is ultimately a whole-of-life problem. It's not something that happened when he was 15, 16, when he broke a law. Sin is something, it's a, it's a defect that's built into him now. It's built into him. And so sin is the great issue, actually. It feels so strange to have someone say the word sin this many times, uh, in a, in, a little, in a little monologue, doesn't it? We just don't talk about it. But the Bible's predominant concern is, how do we deal with sin? And you see, in the context of that great, that great concern of Scripture, of, of Christian Scripture, of how to deal with sin, comes John introducing Jesus, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's, here's the thing, actually. I think you can take away from what John's saying. If your faith has no place for sin, it has no place for the real Christ. That's what John's saying, actually. You see, if you don't have a way to account for sin, account for, if you don't have a sense that humanity, that you individually are, are separated from God, then you can't really understand the true Christ, says John. You see, if you have a spirituality that leaves sin out, you can't know the Christ we meet in John's gospel. See, there is no place, if there's no place for, faith in your, uh, for sin in your faith, it has no place for the real Christ, according to John. Because John is introducing Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's startling, it's troubling but it's, it's at the heart of what John's saying. And it's the question that has to be answered. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the world is, is riven by sin? Do you believe you are challenged by sin? And therefore, do you believe that Jesus is the one who will take away the sin of the world? But of course, there's a, there's a subsequent question. Well, Jesus might be the great sin room, but how do, how do I deal with him once I've met him? And of course, that is a con that's a con continuing question that goes hand in hand with, have you met the real Christ? The question that, that comes after that is, how do you deal with him? And interestingly, I think John does two things. John the Baptist does two things in this little account, which are kind of a model for us, actually, of how you are meant to respond to Christ if this is true, that the real Christ has come to deal with 
this real issue called sin. And I, I describe it in two movements. First is to fall to your knees, and then the other one is to get to your feet. To fall to your knees. Look what John says when Jesus comes. He says, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he's before me. Now, this is actually a phrase that John's used earlier in the account. You might remember him saying it in last week's reading. But he repeats it again, or at least John, the gospel writer, repeats it again, because this is a key understanding for John the Baptist. If you don't know who John the Baptist is, at this time, when we're reading about him, he is probably one of the predominant figures in, in kind of the Jewish society because he has developed a real following around him. Of course, there continues to be a religious elite, but John the Baptist is kind of this alternate figure who large groups of people have started to follow. In fact, he's created this cultic practice, so to speak, of bapt baptism. It's a taken out of the ritual washing culture of Jewish time. John the Baptist has started doing this, and lots of people want to follow John the Baptist. He is the next big thing. And yet, in, in the midst of this, he sees Jesus come, and he says, actually, this guy is better, far greater than me. This guy's far greater than me. There's a, there's a moment where John says, actually, I have to become less. He has to become more. He'll say that in the next chapter, the next section of the chapter. And so there is a sense in when you meet the real Christ, you take a step back. You take a step back, or more likely, you fall to your feet. See, John is reluctant, we know, from the other Gospels as well, to even baptise Jesus because he feels like Jesus how can he possibly baptize Christ? He says, one who comes after me has surpassed me because he's before me. There's a, there's a sense in which Christ overwhelms John, his own self-understanding and his understanding of, I guess, Jesus is so extraordinary that John's place in the world suddenly shrinks. That is what it is to meet Jesus. It's to have your sense of self shrink in some way, shape or form. And for Christ to increase, it is to, to fall to your knees. But what is also interesting is if you, you've got the Bible in front of you, I haven't got it on the screen here, but you'll see there's just two paragraphs in the, in the reading for today. And do you see the movement that takes place at the start of each of the two paragraphs? First of all, the next day, John saw Jesus. So he sees Jesus, he encounters him. What happened is the next paragraph? Then John gave this testimony. It's the classic movement in the Bible, actually. You meet Christ, you testify about Christ. You meet Christ, you get on your feet and speak about Christ. You fall to your knees, but interesting, extraordinary, quite challenging. The Bible's next turn is to say, get up onto your feet and speak about Christ. I think this is just kind of almost an intrinsic human response, actually, to meeting something extraordinary. I think social media is built on this, isn't it? You, it doesn't, it's almost an instinct now for someone to encounter something extraordinary, some kind of news, some kind of event, and need to pass it on, need to pass it on almost immediately. You repost it, you tweet about it, you comment on it. You need to engage in the passing on of this information. So, in fact, what the Bible's describing here is not all that countercultural or counterintuitive. It's the thing you're inclined to do when you hear something that's extraordinary. You hear it, 
and you pass it on. And John's doing that. And that's the, it's not just John the Baptist. He's not creating a new movement for God's people. This is, this is the movement throughout the Bible. So Old Testament, Isaiah, encounters God in a vision. And what does he say? He says, send me. In the New Testament, we see this account in, in the Gospels, where the Samaritan woman, who we'll hear about in a couple of weeks' time in John chapter 4, meets Jesus Having encountered the real Christ, what does, he, what does she do? She goes back to the town and tells everyone about it. We think about the apostles. Peter, who denies Jesus, is ultimately the one who is proclaiming the gospel, who stands on the steps of the synagogue where he previously denied Christ to declare Christ. And, of course, Paul, who persecutes the church, when he meets Christ on Damascus Road, turns around and becomes the one who leads the church into new places by proclaiming the gospel. This is the constant movement. You meet Christ, you testify about him. This is really important to take on, actually, because I think there's a tendency where you say, oh, I can just meet Christ and continue on my way. But the, the movement of the Bible is always when you meet the real Christ, you testify to that. You testify to him. And it's, it's why, I mean, I suspect every good church is encouraging God's people to share their faith. In, in, there's obviously different ways to do it. You don't have to do John the Baptist methodology, of course. But the idea that when you've met the real Christ, you share that Christ, you testify about him. That's the constant movement. What's really interesting, though, is we find this very difficult, don't we? We find this very difficult. I think it's actually because... There's something that John the Baptist is doing that we find very hard. Look what he says in verse 31. He says this. He says, The reason I came baptizing with water was that he, Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. So what John the Baptist is saying there is saying, my ministry, the thing that's, that that's, I'm being all about, has actually just been about preparing for him. I've just been here to prepare for him. My labor, my efforts, the things that define me, actually just about him. They're just about Jesus. And I think the reason we often find that, that movement from meeting Christ to testifying about Christ is hard is because the, the step from this point to this point requires us making our lives, our labours, actually about him. Actually about him. I think about the, the, see, the thing in social media or that kind of platform is actually testifying about something can actually build yourself up can actually make you more important. But to testify about Christ is to actually make yourself less important. To say, actually, my labor is about him. To understand your labor, your efforts, your identity as subordinate, as less, less important than Christ's identity and than Christ's work. But of course, our culture of self-absorption means that we do make it really hard at times to take that step across, to say my life will actually be about testifying about this person. But that is what John does so beautifully, doesn't he? He does so beautifully. I think that is the challenge, isn't it, of testifying to Christ, the sin remover, because actually sin mitigates against that very movement of testifying. Here's what Augustine says. He's an early church father. He says, sin is the tendency to be bent away from God into an attitude of self-absorption. It's, it's not to say God doesn't exist at all, 
is just to say that the most important person in my life is actually me. That my fundamental goals in life about building myself up, establishing my name or my brand or my identity, and yet the gospel is saying the fundamental purpose in your life is to establish the identity of Christ. To point to the identity, not establish, but point to the identity of Christ. So the real challenge actually of doing, of having that movement from meeting Christ to testifying Christ is, is sin itself, actually. Sin itself makes it hard to testify to the great remover of sin, Jesus. So how do you meet him in a way that, that completely changes the way you operate? I think it's really interesting, actually, we learn from John the Baptist. It's not just good enough to know the facts about Jesus. It's not just good enough to know the facts about Jesus. Here's what John says in verse 33. He says, And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. I think this is a really interesting verse. It's interesting because if you don't know the story of John the Baptist, he is Jesus' cousin. He's born to Elizabeth. And yet John will say, I myself did not know him. Of course he knew him. He knew who this man was. He was his cousin. He'd most likely grown up with him in periods of life as a child. It's not like he saw a man coming to him and he thought, I've never seen that person physically before. No, he had. He knew him on one level. He knew him physically. He knew him from an earthly sense. But there was a a reality that for John, knowing all the, the physical realities of Christ was not enough. Something profound needed to take place. He needed to know Jesus at a deeper level. And actually, that's what's so striking here. John the Baptist is no so great at moving from meeting Christ to testifying because of something intrinsic in him, but no, because someone spoke to him, someone told him, and he says, it's the one who sent me to baptize him. In other words, God. See, John can make that movement because God has revealed Christ to him. God has revealed Christ to him. Not he's done, all the, he's done all the homework, he's worked it all out, but God has revealed Christ to him. And we see him reveal him in, in a number of ways. First of all, he reveals him uniquely, right? So th- there's, a, there's a sense in which God's revelation to John is not like the revelation to anyone else because John sees the dove descend on Jesus. He knows that the dove is the Holy Spirit. Now, that's, that's, other people would have seen a dove fly down, but they had no idea what the, the dove was. But he understood that. So there's a unique sense in that. Right? So John is a unique revelation. But there's also a sense that what God is revealing to him is in line already with what God has revealed to John earlier. So Jesus' ministry of baptizing with the Holy Spirit is like the, the next and perfect version of what John was already doing himself, baptizing. And, and, and to a sense, a perfect, a better version of those Jewish ceremonial washings that already existed in the Old Testament even. So God's revelation to John, pointing out who Jesus is, is unique, but in, at the same time is in line with all that he's already been saying. It's like the, it's the full picture rather than just an outline up to this point. And yet the, the, the testimony that John makes broadens it to everyone else. God's revelation is not just to John. In fact, the point of placing John there is that God might reveal who Christ is 
to a broader group of people. John is sent to testify to Jesus so that when we encounter his testimony and the testimony of the rest of the eyewitness of Jesus, we encounter the real Christ. There's something really interesting. There's a real balance here. So you do meet Christ in the historical realities. You do meet Christ there. But to really meet him, you need God to reveal him to you. That's what we see here. See, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. And so there's a truth that both we need to do, we we need to engage our minds in the reality, the historical realities that Jesus, but if you really want to meet Christ, God must also reveal him to you. God must also reveal him to you. That's a constant battle. God is, Jesus is not less than historicity. He's not less than just the historical reality of a man living in Palestine in 30 AD, but he's more than that. And that more than that is a gift from God when God speaks to us. How do you know, though, that the final question I have is, how do you know that God has truly revealed Christ to you? That's, of course, the question, isn't it? Go back to what John says at the start of his little, his, his introduction to Jesus. It says this, it says, Behold the Lamb of God. This is, I think, why John, this is why what John has to say gives us confidence that he has met the real Christ. And it gives us, if you can say this too, it gives you confidence. Say, he says the Lamb of God. It's such a pregnant phrase. Actually, most commentators are not completely sure what John is referring to. He could be referring to the Passover, which is this Jewish festival marking the Exodus moment as um, God's people are freed from Egyptian bondage. And how are they freed? Because they slay a lamb, sprinkle its blood on the doorpost, and so God passes over their houses as he judges the rest of the, the Egyptian nation and therefore frees the Israelite nation. It could be the Passover. It could be the use of a lamb or a goat, an animal as a sacrifice in Old Testament sacrificial language. It could be the reference to the lamb in Isaiah 53, who who is punished for us, says the prophet. Or it could be a reference to all of that, actually. John is using a phrase here which is pregnant with meaning. Behold the Lamb of God. You see, but see, the thing is, John realizes something about Jesus. He will take away the sin of the world by giving himself up. By giving himself up. Now, John doesn't know what we actually know, which is that ultimately this Passover lamb, this sacrifice for sin, this one who'll be substituted for us will die on a Roman cross. We'll find that out in John 19 when Jesus is killed on the Passover in the place of the Passover lamb for the sins of the whole world. And he'll say, it is finished. John doesn't know that yet, but he does know this, that Christ is the one who'll take away the sin of the world at the cost of his own life, in the place of the world itself. And actually, how do you know you've met the real Christ? You understand Christ by the cross. You, you start to see him. That The cross is central to you. Understand. I mean, imagine you meet... I, I always love this, actually. When, you, when um, wives of sports 
sportsmen or women, wives of sportsmen, say something like, oh, I didn't know them before. I met them in a, you know, a bar or something. I didn't even watch cricket, for example, as a cricketer. I didn't even watch cricket. I just thought they were a nice person. We got to know them. Now, I, now I've realised I need to watch cricket. You can't know a cricketer, you can't know an Australian cricketer, for example, like Steve Smith, without knowing that he plays cricket. This is something that's intrinsic to them. I mean, you can claim, I, I love them for a whole heap of other reasons, but if, if you ignore this thing that is central to them, you don't really know them, of course, do you? You can't know the real Christ unless you know the cross of Christ, unless you know the purpose of the cross, unless you know your need for the cross, unless you can exclaim, actually with joy, with wonder, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and actually who takes away my sin, who takes away my sin. So here you are. We're going to meet the real Jesus. My challenge is not just that you have a have a sense of your need for sin to be removed, that you see that Christ is the one who does it by being the Lamb of God. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, these, these words of John the Baptist and this introduction to Jesus. Heavenly Father, would you be merciful? Would you reveal Christ to our hearts? For those of us who already know him, give us a fresh wonder and awe that can cry with John the Baptist, Behold! the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for those of us who might even have heard his name, even believe that he existed, would you reveal the truth, the marvel, the wonder that Christ has come to deal with the greatest problem in our life by giving up what is of greatest value to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.